Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder, pedophilia, and abuse that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. One day in the spring of 1975, 50-year-old Erval LeBaron summoned his 10th wife, Vonda White, to a small home in Ogden, Utah. It was a rare honor. Recently, Ervil had been so consumed by the responsibilities of managing his church that he only visited his wives when they were fertile. As Vonda was currently six months pregnant, she had not expected to see him for some time. Vonda knew at once that something serious plagued her husband. He paced back and forth before her, pinching his brow in an expression of pained concentration. At last, he calmed down enough to tell Vonda why he had called for her. Ervil had received another revelation from God. Very soon, one of his most loyal followers would betray them. The news was extremely troubling to Vonda, but Ervil told his wife not to worry. The Lord had revealed how she could address the betrayal. He had even specified the pistol Vonda was to use, a 38 caliber Colt revolver. Ervil handed his wife the gun and wrapped his hands around hers. They bowed their heads in prayer, thanking the Lord for the opportunity to save their friend's soul. They would atone for his sins by shedding his blood. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults, a ParCast original. Every Tuesday, we look at a cult's practices, their leader, and their followers. Today, we're taking a deep dive into the Church of the Firstborn of the Lamb of God, a polygamist Mormon fundamentalist group. On the orders of its founder, Ervil LeBaron, members committed a series of bloody killings during the 1970s. This week, we'll focus on Ervil LeBaron himself, from his childhood to his rise to power. We'll understand how he came to believe that he was chosen by Jesus Christ and Joseph Smith to carry on the mantle as the one true head of the LDS Church. Next week, we'll broaden our focus to Ervil's cult and explore the beliefs that made them willing to kill for their leader. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to ParCast.com slash merch for more information. You can listen to previous episodes of Cults, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, wherever you listen to podcasts. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. Ervil LeBaron was born on February 22, 1925, in a dusty settlement in northern Mexico. Like nearly everything in Ervil's life, his place of birth was not an accident, but a matter of divine destiny. His family moved to the remote encampment on the direct orders from God. Ervil's father, Alma Dayer LeBaron, received messages from God his entire life. Sometimes they came in the form of dreams, sometimes as visions. 
Most frequently, they came in the form of a voice from deep within his own chest, which he affectionately called Monitor. Vanessa's going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. Alma Dare LeBaron was experiencing what psychiatrists call auditory hallucinations, hearing voices that aren't there. Auditory hallucinations have been linked to a number of mental illnesses, including paranoid schizophrenia, a disorder that prevents thoughts and reality from being in sync. Harvard psychiatrist Anne Shin explained, when your brain signals to generate a movement, there's a parallel signal known as an efference copy that basically says, this is mine, it's not coming from outside. In other words, when a person fails to recognize an internal thought as their own, they experience these unmarked thoughts as hearing voices or an auditory hallucination. However, many psychiatrists argue that hearing voices is not always a sign of mental illness. And note that auditory hallucinations have been reported by otherwise healthy people. Alma Dare LeBaron was never diagnosed with a mental illness. But even if he was, it's unlikely that he ever would have pursued treatment. Alma Dare was a practicing member of the Church of Latter-day Saints. To explain the voices he heard, he needed to look no further than his own faith. Joseph Smith, the founder of the LDS Church, famously reported a vision of an angel who instructed him to dig up a pair of golden tablets. The scripture on the tablets eventually became the Book of Mormon. These divine revelations continued throughout his life. In 1841, God instructed him to take a second wife. While polygamy seemed to directly contradict the words Smith had published in the Book of Mormon, the prophet would not be deterred. If God had called him to take on multiple wives, then it was his sacred duty and evidence of his own saintliness. He took somewhere between 28 and 50 wives and encouraged his male followers to do the same. The United States government had other ideas and outlawed the practice in 1862. The LDS Church eventually caved to the government's pressure and abolished plural marriages in 1890. In the coming years, they grew increasingly embarrassed of the historical practice and hostile toward fundamentalists who continued to take multiple wives. But in 1923, Monitor continuously instructed 37-year-old Alma Dare LeBaron to fulfill Joseph Smith's command and take another wife, specifically that he should marry his attractive 18-year-old housekeeper, Oni Jones. He had never disobeyed the voice in his head before, but it would put Alma Dyer at a crossroads with his church. Fortunately, he would not have to make the decision alone. One night, he was shaken awake by a firm hand and looked up to find his deceased grandfather sitting before him. The elderly man was draped in a white robe with a gold scepter in his right hand and a crown on his head. Alma Dare's grandfather had not been an important man in life, but his spirit now claimed that he was the rightful head of the Mormon church and the inheritor of Joseph Smith's mantle. Now, he passed that title and responsibility on to Alma Dyer. The only thing Alma Dyer had to do was to follow the Ten Commandments and obey the original teachings of Joseph Smith. More importantly, he had to resurrect the practice of plural marriage. 
The next morning, Alma Dyer informed his family of the previous night's vision. His wife, Maud, was surprised to learn that her husband was actually the true scion of Joseph Smith, but ultimately agreed to welcome 18-year-old Oni into the family. Alma Dyer faced harsh consequences for his decision. He was excommunicated from the mainstream LDS church, along with both his wives. A short time later, he learned that some neighbors had discussed a LeBaron lynching. Afraid, Alma Dayer loaded his two wives and eight children into a covered wagon and headed south, following the path laid by fundamentalist Mormons fleeing persecution since the 1890s. Late in 1924, they finally crossed the border into Mexico. They settled into the Colonia Juarez, a small Mormon town in the Mexican state of Chihuahua. When Ervil was born one year later in 1925, he was Alma Dayer and Maud's ninth child. Ervil's early life in Mexico was not easy. Like their Utah brethren, most of the Colonia Juarez had turned away from polygamy after the Mormon church started excommunicating those who practiced it. Alma Dare thought he would be among like-minded followers, but the colonists ostracized the family. The LeBaron children were bullied and excluded. But the fact that Alma Dare LeBaron had two wives wasn't the only reason that his family was treated differently. Many of the LeBaron children had a reputation for bizarre and erratic behavior. The LeBaron's fourth daughter, Lucinda, started to suffer from psychotic episodes in 1933 when she was just 17. She had bouts of hysteria in which she writhed and screamed. The family coped with these manic episodes by chaining Lucinda in a hut by her ankle for hours. Ben, the oldest boy, showed signs of trouble two years later. He heard voices that told him he was God. In 1935, at the age of 22, he suffered a mental breakdown and was hospitalized in an Arizona asylum. He would not be the last. At some point in their lives, nearly every one of the 10 LeBaron children suffered symptoms of mental illness. Paranoia, delusions of grandeur, oral hallucinations, and visions plagued the family. Six of the seven boys reported hearing voices like their father heard monitor. The astounding number of LeBaron children who exhibited symptoms of mental illness suggests that genetics likely played a role. According to Dr. Maud Rizali Saleh, schizophrenia can be hereditary, but it requires a combination of several genetic factors. The more factors that are present, the more likely a child will develop symptoms. In a 2004 study, Saleh found that individuals who had one schizophrenic parent had an 8.2% chance of developing schizophrenia themselves, compared to the general population risk of 0.86%. Individuals with two schizophrenic parents have a 36.6% chance of developing the disorder. While Ervil's mother, Maud, is not known to have experienced visions or hallucinations herself, she reported that her father had. With both sides of their family tree showing potential evidence of mental illness, it seems likely that the LeBaron children had a statistical risk of developing schizophrenia significantly above that of the general population. Ultimately, however, genetics cannot tell the full story of any mental illness. According to the National Institute of Mental Health, scientists believe that interactions between genes and aspects of the individual's environment are necessary for schizophrenia to develop. 
Environmental factors could include exposure to viruses, malnutrition, or psychosocial factors, such as chronic stress. Stress was one environmental trigger the LeBaron children likely felt plenty of. Herman Hatch, a member of the Colonia Juarez community who knew the LeBarons, described the pressures the children faced at home. He said, quote, all their lives they had a great amount of pressure put on them by their home lives. That's what was wrong with the whole mess of them. Their parents had been excommunicated, and they spent their lifetimes self-justifying and shoving their beliefs on those kids. A tremendous amount of pressure. And it just kept going on and going on until it turned into a mental disorder. Whether it was the result of genetic factors, environmental triggers, or a combination of the two, there was no doubt that many of the LeBaron children suffered from mental illness. At least three would spend time in psychiatric hospitals. One by one, four of the seven LeBaron boys claimed that they had been selected by their father to be the Lord's prophet. Even in such a troubled family, Ervil LeBaron found ways to set himself apart. Of all his siblings, he alone would claim to possess the God-given right to kill. Coming up, Ervil amasses his first followers. Now, back to the story. In 1924, 38-year-old Alma Dare LeBaron loaded his two wives and eight children into a covered wagon and headed south to Mexico, where he hoped he could practice polygamy in peace. He was sorely disappointed. In Colonia Juarez, the LeBarons were met with the same judgment and disdain that they had hoped to leave behind in Utah. They had little choice but to make the most of things. While Almadeir traveled back and forth across the border to continue his work as an itinerant house painter, the LeBaron children went to school, studied scripture, and cavorted outdoors. By 1939, the clan had swelled considerably. There were now 19 LeBaron children, 13 from Maud and six from Oni. While the neighborhood children continued to ostracize them, at least they had one another to rely on for company. This was particularly true for 14-year-old Ervil LeBaron, who was always in the company of his 16-year-old brother, Joel. Though Joel was two years older, Ervil overshadowed him in nearly every way. Joel was notoriously mild-mannered, quiet, and by some accounts, not particularly smart. Ervil was tall and classically handsome. He had sandy brown hair, striking blue eyes, and a square jaw. But most importantly, Ervil knew how to talk. For many, Ervil seemed to overflow with confidence and charisma. He was well-versed on the Bible and the Book of Mormon and could speak on them for hours without stopping. Colonia Juarez residents were particularly impressed with the way Ervil jumped from one subject to another. Many found that they were unable to make heads or tails of what Ervil was saying, but took this to mean that he was simply too smart to keep up with. Mild-mannered Joel was particularly inspired by his younger brother's ability to talk for hours without stopping. But while Ervil may have been more intelligent than some of his peers, his speeches might have been an indicator of something far more troubling. 
The descriptions of Ervil's rants bear close resemblance to disorganized thinking, another symptom of schizophrenia. Also called formal thought disorder, disorganized thinking is marked by illogical leaps and derailed trains of thought. But Ervil's erratic ramblings were seen as evidence not of insanity, but sanctity. He was the best proselytizer among them. His chance to put his skills to use came in 1940, when he was 15. Joel, now 17, was assigned to complete his mission, the period in which young LDS men and women volunteer to spread the church's message. Joel refused to go unless Ervil was allowed to accompany him. The church agreed to this demand and Ervil became one of the youngest missionaries in church history. The brothers spent two years traveling across southern Mexico, professing their faith. Ironically, while they were undertaking the mission at the direction of the mainstream LDS church, they were actually professing the tenets of polygamy that had caused their father to be excommunicated. By the time Joel and Ervil returned home, Alma Deir LeBaron was finally fed up with how the Colonia Juarez community treated his family. He still believed that he was the rightful heir of Joseph Smith and the true head of the Mormon church and yet he was no closer to being recognized for it than the day his grandfather had appeared to him. So, in 1945, 59-year-old Alma Dayer once again set off into the desert with his family in tow. They founded a ranch in the northern Sierra Madre, eventually naming it Colonia La Baron. Alma Dayer had found his Zion, but he would never receive the respect and recognition he believed he deserved. For the six years he spent in Colonia LeBaron, the settlement was little more than a handful of dilapidated sheds and a dusty, unkempt field. Alma Dayer spent the last year of his life fully paralyzed due to lead poisoning, a result of his career as an itinerant house painter. He died in 1951 at the age of 65. Almost immediately, the brothers squabbled over which of them had inherited their father's mantle as the rightful leader of the LDS church. Ben, now 38, made the first claim and established his own church, but his ambitions were soon overwhelmed by the mental illness that plagued him all his adult life. On a trip to Salt Lake City, Ben attempted to complete 200 push-ups in the center of a busy intersection. He was arrested for stopping traffic and committed to a psychiatric hospital, where he spent the majority of the next decade. Joel and Ervil distanced themselves from Ben and his church, choosing instead to join a more established polygamous sect run by a man named Rulon Allred. Here, they finally got to see what a real fundamentalist LDS sect could look like. Unlike Alma Dayer's ramshackle homestead filled with only his own relatives, Allred's church had hundreds of followers, led by a council of elders. Joel and Ervil took leadership roles in the church. By 1955, the brothers were ready to put what they had learned to use. Joel announced that he, not his older brothers, had inherited the mantle of prophet from Almadeir and would be starting his own church. Some members of the LeBaron family were surprised that it was mild-mannered Joel and not brash, bullheaded Ervil who made the claim for the leadership position. But Joel, now 32, was still the older brother, and Ervil, 30, seemed content to serve as his second-in-command. Joel traveled to Salt Lake City and filed paperwork to incorporate the Church of the Firstborn of the Fullness of Time, 
referencing several elements of the LDS faith, the name essentially stated that the LeBaron Order had inherited the position of leadership over God's kingdom on earth. For the first few years, the work was tedious and exhausting. Ervil and Joel made frequent trips back and forth between Utah and their ranch in Mexico. They spread their beliefs in polygamy, strict adherence to the Ten Commandments, and the teachings of Joseph Smith. Joel served as the prophet and head of the Firstborn Church, while Ervil took the title of presiding patriarch. Using what they had learned from All Red Sect, the two brothers headed back to Mexico and got to work doing something that their father never bothered to attempt, seeking out non-family members to join their congregation. At first, they focused their ministry efforts on members of rival fundamentalist sects from the Colonia LeBaron area, even stealing from the ranks of Rulon Alred's flock. Before long, however, they diversified their proselytizing efforts to include LDS followers from the United States. In 1958, three years after founding the Church of the Firstborn, they converted a group of 12 French missionaries who had recently been excommunicated from the mainstream LDS church. These young men became some of their most devoted and outspoken apostles. The two brothers made an unlikely but effective pairing as religious leaders. 35-year-old Joel's soft-spoken, thoughtful manner and modest way of living earned him comparisons to Jesus Christ. 33-year-old Ervil's bombastic speeches and obsession with the scripture appealed to fundamentalist practitioners who believed the mainstream LDS church had become too lax. Ervil's brash, bombastic preaching style and Joel's air of holiness were effective. The Church of the Firstborn's ranks slowly swelled, and by the early 1960s, they had over 500 followers. It didn't take long for Ervil to take advantage of his position of power as the patriarch. He wore expensive shoes and drove sports cars, while Joel still used the dusty pickup he'd had for years. Ervil also used his position to get out of anything resembling hard work. There was plenty of it to go around on the still-developing ranch community, and Ervil was in charge of doling out jobs. Unsurprisingly, his leadership role kept him so busy that he was never able to partake in any form of physical activity. But the area where Ervil found his position of power most helpful was with women. Ervil had always been considered handsome. Combined with his confidence and rank, he was extremely attractive to Joel's female followers, and he took every opportunity to return their affections. His brother Verlin explained, as young girls grew to maturity, Ervil let them know that it was his sacred duty to place them with a man of his choice. Far too often, his choice was himself. He could coolly tell a girl in the most sanctimonious manner that he was God's choice for her. Finally, Ervil reached the point that he could get a revelation to marry a girl faster and more often than anyone could imagine. Throughout the 1950s and 60s, Ervil was constantly in pursuit of a new wife. His marriages included two pairs of sisters and several women who were already wed to members of the firstborn congregation. While he preferred young white women, virtually none of his female followers were off limits. The age of Ervil's wives varied wildly. In 1961, 36-year-old Ervil married 17-year-old Lorna Chinoweth and 13-year-old Christina Jensen. 
Ervil justified his newfound penchant for adolescent girls by invoking the Bible. He claimed that the Virgin Mary had been 14 when she gave birth to Jesus Christ, making this age the most ideal time for marriage. The argument appeared to satisfy the firstborn followers. The parents of both Lorna Chinowith and Christina Jensen actively encouraged their daughter's marriages. They continued to support Ervil, even after he began molesting Lorna's 12-year-old sister, Rena. While Ervil's pedophilic tendencies went unchecked, his appetite for stealing other men's wives was less well-received. It was the cause of the first major conflict between him and Joel. In 1961, Ervil's childhood best friend returned to Colonia LeBaron from a trip to the United States. He discovered that his wife had divorced him and married Ervil in his absence. The friend complained to Joel, who immediately had a new revelation from God. From now on, women had to wait six months after a divorce before remarrying. Tensions between the brothers continued to escalate until in 1964, they put 600 miles between each other. Joel purchased an 8,500-acre beachfront property on the Baja California Peninsula called Los Molinos. He began spending most of his time there working to establish a new branch of the Firstborn Church. Meanwhile, Ervil was left in charge back in Colonia LeBaron. Finally operating without supervision, Ervil's beliefs took a more militant edge. The Church of the Firstborn had always preached devout adherence to the Ten Commandments, but Ervil wanted to take things a step further. He became increasingly obsessed with the gruesome punishments prescribed in the Old Testament for those who defied God's law. If God expected the Israelites to use capital punishment, then surely he was expected to do the same. Ervil loudly preached that it was the responsibility of the firstborners to take up arms against their enemies, which he defined as any non-believers and anyone who refused to acknowledge the ascendancy of the LeBaron order. That included the mainstream LDS church and the United States government. Many of the firstborners were frightened by Ervil's violent rhetoric. Up until now, they had considered themselves peaceful, law-abiding citizens who valued family and devotion to scripture. Suddenly, their patriarch referred to them as an army. In addition to the militant language, Ervil's behavior became more erratic. His sermons grew longer, sometimes lasting over 24 hours. He went several days at a time without sleeping and frequently pinched his eyebrows in discomfort. As with Ervil's disorganized thinking, these all-night lectures were a possible indicator of schizophrenia. A study conducted at the University of Göttingen in Germany found that between 30 and 80% of patients with schizophrenia suffered from insomnia and other sleep disorders. And Ervil was also showing another symptom of schizophrenia, paranoid delusions. He started carrying a pistol at all times and warned his followers that the U.S. government and the Catholic Church's Knights of Columbus might send assassins to attack the Church of the Firstborn at any moment. When Joel heard that things were getting out of hand back at Colonia LeBaron, he rushed home to set things straight. He chastised his younger brother for frightening their followers and publicly denounced Ervil's militant dogma. But Ervil wasn't cowed by Joel's disapproval. Instead, as soon as Joel headed back to Los Molinos, 
Ervil complained openly about his brother's timid leadership. It was exactly this refusal to adhere to the strict tenets of God's law that had led the mainstream LDS church to denounce polygamy. If Joel was too much of a coward to do what was necessary, he would go down the same path. Their conflict only deepened. While Joel was determined to use Los Molinos as a farm community for new converts, Ervil wanted to turn it into a resort for wealthy Americans. He even flew in investors to view the property, but Joel became furious and forbade him from interfering further. Ervil's desire to leverage a profit might seem in opposition to his apparent devotion to his faith. In fact, the two were deeply intertwined. Joseph Smith and later prophets had expounded the belief that wealth was a sign of God's favor and evidence of sanctity. As far as Ervil was concerned, if Joel couldn't make the firstborn church and the LeBarons rich, he couldn't truly be God's chosen prophet. Ervil ignored Joel's wishes and kept trying to turn Los Molinos into a money-making resort. When Joel attempted to force him off the project, Ervil revealed that he had an ace up his sleeve. Ervil had filled out the paperwork to purchase the property, but instead of listing the Church of the Firstborn as the buyer, he wrote his own name on the deed. Los Molinos was his to do with as he wanted. By November of 1969, Joel had lost all patience for his brother. He summoned 44-year-old Ervil to a meeting at his house, along with their younger brother, 39-year-old Verlin. He stripped Ervil of his position and demoted him to a mere layperson. Verlin would take over as patriarch. The normally unshakable Ervil broke down and sobbed. He thanked Joel for removing him from the position, which he now claimed had become too overwhelming. Soon, all three brothers were crying. The next day, Joel stood before the firstborn community and announced that his younger brother was stepping down. Ervil cried again while humbly promising that he would continue to work as a member of the church. If Ervil felt any genuine contrition for his actions, it was very short-lived. While he accepted the demotion, he did not give up his radical beliefs. He still felt it was the church's responsibility to punish God's enemies with violence and death. In fact, the list of God's enemies had just grown. Joel LeBaron, had taken the top spot. Coming up, the tension between Ervil and Joel reaches a breaking point and the brothers go to war. Now back to the story. On May 8, 1971, 48-year-old Joel LeBaron, the prophet of the Church of the Firstborn, sent a warning to his younger brother Ervil. He was on the verge of excommunication. The announcement was not particularly shocking. In the two years following his demotion from Patriarch, 46-year-old Ervil had repeatedly advocated for mutiny against his older brother. Two weeks later, Ervil responded to Joel's warning with the declaration. Like his father and three of his brothers before him, he had received a divine revelation from the Lord. God told him that Joel had betrayed the teachings of Joseph Smith and was now a fallen prophet. God also revealed that Ervil, and not Joel, had inherited the mantle of Joseph Smith. According to Ervil's revelation, the Church of the Firstborn was now in a state of apostasy, in direct opposition to God's law. The only recourse for the Firstborn followers was to renounce Joel's church and join Ervil's, the Church of the Firstborn of the Lamb of God. 
Ervil hoped that his bold proclamation would send the majority of firstborn followers running to his side, but he was sorely disappointed. While a select few defected to join Ervil's Church of the Lamb, the vast majority remained with Joel. Several families took the opportunity to abandon the LeBarons altogether and fled to the United States to escape the brewing war. Ervil's threats forced Joel's hand. He publicly announced Ervil's excommunication from the Church of the Firstborn. While the action was largely symbolic, it nevertheless infuriated Ervil. He countered that by refusing to acknowledge him as the true prophet. Joel had committed an act of treason against heaven that carries the penalty of death in this world. Meanwhile, Ervil's sermons in the Church of the Lamb took on an apocalyptic undercurrent. He claimed that God had revealed that he was the one mighty and strong prophet, foretold by Joseph Smith as the representative of Christ who would set in order the house of God before the end of the world. According to Ervil's interpretation, this event would involve a final confrontation between himself and a false prophet who represented the forces of Satan. Ervil believed that he was destined to battle and defeat the imposter, at which point he would finally be recognized by all mankind as Jesus Christ's representative on earth. The Church of the Lamb would establish a global theocracy, with Ervil as the political and spiritual leader of the world. Of course, the false prophet was Joel. Their sibling rivalry had taken on cosmic significance. A year after his excommunication, Ervil finally made his move. In August of 1972, Joel drove the 600 miles between Los Molinos and Colonia LeBaron with two of his seven wives and a handful of his children. But his car broke down along the way. He left it with a follower named Benjamin Zarate to be repaired. But unbeknownst to Joel, Zarate was among the few firstborners who had switched sides to support Ervil. On Sunday, August 20th, 1972, Joel's family dropped him and his 14-year-old son Ivan at Zarate's house to pick up the repaired car. When Joel walked through the door, he found two of Ervil's followers waiting for him. Ivan was outside waiting in the car when he heard a window shatter. He looked up to see Gamliel Rios and Dan Jordan beating his father with a chair. Before the teenager could react, he heard one of the men shout, kill him, followed by a pair of gunshots. A moment later, the men emerged from the house. Ivan sat frozen as they hurried down the street, climbed into a waiting station wagon and fled. Ivan finally forced himself to enter Zarate's house. He found his father lying spread eagle on the floor, a bullet hole in the back of his skull. Joel LeBaron, the prophet of the Church of the Firstborn, was dead. One month after Joel's murder, Ervil sent a long-winded letter to the Firstborn congregation. In it, he simultaneously denied taking any part in Joel's murder, but also blamed his older brother for being the one to start the violence. The letter ended with an invitation and a threat. The firstborners who denounced Joel were welcome to join the Church of the Lamb of God as long as they were prepared to pay a tithe. Those who did not comply, he said, were not fit to live on the earth. Once again, he did not get the reaction he expected. Instead of following Ervil, 
The firstborners chose Verlin the Baron to be their new prophet. They started gathering evidence and testimony to build a case against Joel's killer. Despite the fact that he had spent the last few years publicly threatening Joel, Ervil believed the fact that he hadn't pulled the trigger himself gave him plausible deniability. In a stunning act of arrogance, in December of 1972, Ervil walked into an Ensenada police station. He announced who he was and demanded that all the charges against him be dropped. He believed that he had found a loophole to protect him. Mexican law required accusers to surrender evidence within 72 hours or drop their case forever. But Verlin was ready, and the firstborn lawyers had no trouble bringing sufficient evidence in the required time frame. Ervil was charged with being the intellectual author of Joel's murder and imprisoned to await trial. Almost exactly one year later, in late 1973, he was found guilty and sentenced to 12 years in prison. Verlin and Joel's disciples rejoiced. Their prophet had been avenged, and the man who had killed him was behind bars. Or so they thought. On December 14, 1973, one day after the sentencing, 48-year-old Ervil LeBaron walked out of the Ensenada prison. A higher court had overturned the verdict on a technicality. The actual hitmen were not present for the trial. The news that Ervil LeBaron was set free sent a tremor through the Church of the Firstborn, and rightfully so. After 14 months in prison, his frustration over not being recognized as prophet had turned into a fresh determination. In prison, God had given him a new revelation. Verlin was yet another false prophet. Before Ervil could claim his rightful place as the leader of God's kingdom on earth, Verlin had to die. Thanks again for tuning into Cults. Next week, we'll take a closer look at the Church of the Lamb of God and explore the tricks and tactics Ervil used to attract and control his followers. We'll also continue to follow Ervil's war against the Church of the Firstborn, as well as the violent murder spree that led the press to dub him the Mormon Manson. You can find more episodes of Cults, as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Cults was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Liebeskind, and Maggie Admire. This episode of Cults was written by Andrew Kelleher and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. 